Hello, my friends. Thank you so much for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. This show is for veterans, first responders, and their families, and honestly, for anybody who wants to recover from trauma. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible. Our vision is of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please help with this mission by following and rating this show on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This simple action will help others find help for PTS injuries. Your help in promoting this podcast could be saving a life. Good morning, all you beautiful souls, and thank you for tuning in to another edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Coming to me from California, we have Melanie McKiska. Melanie, thank you for making the time. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. It's good to have you. You're originally from Canton, Ohio. Yep. Canton, yep. Canton. We got a town north of or just south of us called Nanton. I say they speak Nantonese, so you probably speak Cantonese then. Yes, yes. We're best known for the Football Hall of Fame. Football Hall of Fame and Canton. Well, thanks for for being on here today. We got a lot of ground to cover, and uh, what I wanted to start with is the fact that you were isolated for a very long time, years, and. Now you're doing the exact opposite of isolation. This is your fourth or fifth podcast. You went from feeling shame and keeping your your head under the covers, so to speak, and now you're doing podcasts. So what is, what's the difference between the two Melanies? The, the, the Melanie who was her big secret was that um, that she was struggling and the Melanie now, who is on international podcasts, uh, telling her story. Tell me about the two Melanies. The Melanie that was struggling before, I'm not sure I would even want to sit in the room with her. Uh, She was struggling, but didn't want to let anybody know that she was struggling, so she masked that with anger. Um, and, uh, And it came out in different ways, but mostly anger because that's really what the feelings that I knew, I knew anger. I knew happy. This Melanie is about truth and honesty. And if I tell my story, it only strengthens me. It releases me every time I tell my story. Um, And I decided that what, and I think I've said this Um, In my last podcast, what anybody thinks about me is none of my business. All I know is to be honest and hopefully if somebody's out there hearing this knows that they're not alone and there is hope. Tell me about that first time that you reached out for help. What happened? (laughs) The first time I reached out for help... I reached out, I I talked to my wife um, and I I didn't really understand what was happening with me. I just knew something was changing. I was emotional. I was crying, which that was not the, the old Melanie's um, things to do. And so I reached out and I just said, I'm struggling. I don't know what's happening. I don't want to be really on this planet anymore. Um, and I'm scared. And so this was after I had been on leave for my department because I had really asked for a lot of help prior to going on leave. Um, but my department didn't want anything to do with hearing that I was struggling. Who had your back during all this? Who could you turn to? Well, at the time, I didn't think I could turn to anybody because I I didn't want, I was the strong one of the family. I was, I'm the go-to person. Um, And so I didn't want to burden anybody else with what I was feeling. And I was scared that if I told them I was struggling, that they would somehow look at me as not being, you know, Wonder Woman, yeah. Uh, any longer. What year was this that um, 
you first asked your department for some, for some support? Let's see. I've been retired. This is probably 10 years. This has been a 10 year journey for me, but 10 years ago and then subsequently up until I retired, I, I, I literally begged, I asked for help. I said, I'm struggling. Uh, I need help. I don't know, understand what's going on. And my, I had a Sergeant who, um, rolled up on me and I was just parked in a parking lot and I was in tears and he's like, uh, get yourself together. I'll go handle this call, but get yourself together. I'm like, I, I don't even know if I can go to the next call, but somehow I just strapped my belt on tighter and finished out the shift. But they, they didn't want to understand that I was struggling mentally. They really wanted to just blame my lack of, um, wanting to do anything while on shift to laziness or, um, you know, that, that kind of stuff. When I really, it took everything that I had to get up every single morning. That feeling of feeling like a thousand pounds and barely being able to get out of bed. There's not a lot of empathy for, for that because people don't understand. Right. And if you, if you knew me, you, it was almost too, like I would turn, you know, when you see those costumes where half of it's white and half of it's black and they turn and they sing one song and then they turn and see, sing the other side of the song. That's kind of how I felt. Um, I, I got up, I went on with my day, but inside I was making plans on how I could escape this feeling. But so looking at me, you, you wouldn't know that I was struggling as much, but that's really comes from, I think, childhood. And let's just uh, say it for what it is. I already hear you avoiding the word, but uh, you're talking about suicidal thoughts. Correct. Yes. I, I had um, suicidal thoughts. I sat on the bathroom floor with my gun in my hand pretty much daily. And you were married at the time. I was married, yes. Yeah. Did, you, did your wife have any idea? Not to this extent, no. And I didn't, she lost two brothers to suicide, so it was oh, a God. huge, huge thing. And we have children and grandchildren. And, but when you're sitting there, you, you're, I, I didn't want to be a failure. I didn't want to um, put anybody out. And I didn't know what, how else to just to just make the pain go away. But for some reason, I would sit there and there was there there was just that little spark, that igniter switch that kept click, 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 click. And I believe that that is what kept me alive. Um, I just, I wanted a way out. I didn't want to do that to my family. I went to those calls. I I saw the aftermath of what that side of the story looked like. And even though I wanted to go get away something in me just couldn't do right that end of the story for me. Looking back now, because it's been some years, you've done some healing, uh, you've, you've attended uh, different programs, Save a Warrior. Looking back now, what role do you think your childhood trauma and the shame of uh, coming out of the closet and all of that had on your susceptibility to an operational stress injury as an adult, as a cop? 
well, because I've done a lot of healing around this, I, I never thought that I had trauma as a child. Um, <laughs> you on, I, on your show, it's like, I had this perfect childhood. It's like, no, dude, you had a totally traumatic childhood because you, because yeah. you, you're, you felt shame and isolation. Isolation is the injury. Yes. But yes, I know that now, um, <laughs> but growing, growing up, I mean, I really had a pretty uh, idyllic childhood, um, although I was scared inside of really what was happening. My childhood and the the things that we did as families and all of that was, was storybook. Looking back on it now and understanding what was happening behind the curtain, um, I, I'm like, how did I miss that? I mean, I, t- I tell my mom I, I, that she was the best puppet master ever, how she managed everything that was actually happening and still smiled. I believe that's why I am the way I am. Uh, I, and not that that's all good because we internalize a lot of things, but it kept me, it kept me going, um, coming out being kicked out, not talking to my dad for 15 years, I still had the most, I had the support of my mother, my grandmother, my sister. I think in my last podcast, I said she used to introduce me as, this is my sister Melanie and she's gay, like some celebrity (laughs) status. (laughs) Um, And so, but she, that was her way of saying, I support you and I love you. Yeah. Um, And, and my wife, of course, um, but but understanding that there was something different about me when I was a child and going through life hiding that, it gave me the tools to be able to hide the trauma. And, and it was, I, as you said, in, um, I listened to you on the Pathways to Resilience uh, show. It, it was a different time. Like you and I are the same age. I turned 52 in May. And, uh, oh, I turned 53 in May. <laughs> there you go. May what? Six. Oh, I'm, I'm the seventh. We're pretty much twins. Uh, there you go. <laughs> pretty much twins. But, uh, during those times, I mean, all the gay jokes, you know, they're, they're rare now. People don't really tell gay jokes anymore, you know? Um, but then that was the norm, you know, uh, in, in the seventies and eighties. And yeah. the last thing, uh, there was a rumor going around when I was a soldier that I was gay. And uh, boy, I was upset. Now I'd just be, I'd play along with it now. You know, uh, I'd be like, stop it. But, um, <laughs> yeah. But, but, but then there was no joking about it. Uh, that, was, no. that, that was a terrifying, terrifying uh, uh, thing, you know, for people to, because nobody was out of the closet in the, uh, then. You know, unless you're in California, no. maybe. But I'm from small town Alberta. Nobody was out of the closet. Right. And I'm from Canton, Ohio. And we don't have, we didn't, ha- wasn't talked about. There wasn't any programs at school. There was any, really any support. Um, so that, there wasn't anybody that really looked like me. That you knew that of. I knew, that I knew of. Yeah. Yes. Because they're in the yeah. closet too. Yes. Yes. The, um, the and those ulti- people that I thought um, that I thought looked like me, I gravitated towards. My wife is a school principal, and you can't swing a dead cat without hitting three people that are trans or something. So somewhere on in, in the spectrum of that really really long alphabet, LBGT, elemental P, just keeps going, right? right. And um, but everybody's out now. And, um, but when we were kids, a good friend of mine, Colleen Gingrass, we called her Coco, her, uh, turned out, turned out that, uh, that she was gay and they just could not, um, see a future in this world. So her and her girlfriend did a Thelma and Louise in their garage and uh, died of uh, carbon monoxide poisoning from leaving the car running in the in the garage. She was a good wow. friend of mine. Tragic. Uh, yeah. 
she was a friend and uh, really loved that girl. But that's how yeah. hard it was in 1986, I think was the year yeah. that that might have happened, give or take. I apologize right. to the family if I'm off by a couple of years. But uh, more or less, that, that was when mid-80s sometime. But that's how hard it was at that time. Right, and people don't realize uh, that now. I mean, I had a, a, a gym teacher, of course, and uh, um, another teacher that lived close to me that was gay, and I used to ride my bike by her house hoping that she'd be outside so I could see really how... <laughs> What's a gay person gay look people, like? <laughs> how do they live, right? So, I, I mean, it sounds so funny now, but that's that's really what I did. I would I would hope that she would be out raking leaves or something or shoveling snow so that I could see that people can actually function normally. And that sounds so crazy saying that right now. <laughs> it's, it's part of the division, I think, too, of society. Like, <clears throat> if you're gay, especially in the 80s, where are you going to go? You're not going to stay rural because there's nobody right. like you. So people move to downtown course. And they'll pick a city like, I mean, to an extreme San Francisco, but uh, they'll, they'll, you're going to go where you're, you're going to feel comfortable. Right. And that sense of connection is critical in PTSD peer support groups. That's the power of them because being with other people that are injured is the exact opposite of the experience that you had with your department when you put your hand up and said, Hey, come on, I'm your sister here, and I need help. And they said, suck it up, buttercup, and gave you no help. Gave you the opposite of help. Instead, um, because this is supposed to be your your uniform family, what you experienced was sanctuary trauma, rejection, the opposite of help. Right, and I got caught up in the... Oh, hang on. Hang on, time out. Uh, I just lost you. Did you hit a mute button? You're there? Yeah, you're back. Oh, I didn't. I didn't hit anything. Okay, well, I must have. It's okay. We're good. You're back. Yeah, uh, I got caught up in this experience. I would see people go to calls or be on the same call, and it would affect me differently than it would that than it appeared that it affected them. Mm. And um, so I would beat myself up even more. Is why can't I? Why am I feeling these feelings? when I never had feelings before and uh, what's wrong with me again, you know, as a child, it was what's wrong with you. Why can't you be like everybody else? And now I'm what's wrong with me. Why can't I be like everybody else? Yeah. Um, And so it's, it's terrible to be in that spot. Well, and that's my back to my, I think was the first question of of how your childhood affected your resilience or lack of resilience uh, as an adult, because it's shown time and time again that people that had insecure childhoods did not feel accepted. They end up doing military or law enforcement or some kind of first responder because you want to be the person that, that help you, that helps, that rescues, that, um, because you're that person that needed the help and didn't have it. So you want, so you turn it into the rescuer. So, right. so looking back now, that's got to give you some, some perspective is like, Oh, these are why I made the choices that I did, but also, <laughs> but also why it would hit you so much harder as an adult when you just get reminded of the childhood of I'm not good enough. I don't fit. Who am I? Where's my place in the world? That is pretty much it. Uh, and, and I had, even though I, I, I do this kind of storybook, if I would have come out way earlier than I did, would the picture have been different or did it? Because although I had support with, from my family, my mom, my grandma, my sister, and my brother, everybody else, except for my dad, it was my dad that as I was coming out and going through all of this stuff that I really wanted that support from. And because I knew I had everybody else's, 
But it was just that, oh, this is going to be one more thing that if my dad knows I'm struggling as bad as I am, that's going to be another failure, another check mark in the failures, you know, slot. Uh, and, it, and it was the complete opposite. I just had this whole picture in my head uh, that that's the way it was going to be again. The biggest piece of healing that I heard from you, from my perspective anyway, towards your father was if you knew better, you'd do better. You worded it differently, but that's how I always word it. If they knew better, they'd do better. If they had more, they'd give more. Yes. Which is so hard I, to get yes. to the point of actually saying it. Uh, so you got to say it about 10,000 times before you start to believe it, but it's also the truth. Did you get to that same place with uh, how you were treated by your department? No. Because it's the same. It is the same, but my department never admitted that they they didn't do what they're supposed to do for me. Because they couldn't. Because if they knew better, they'd do better. Because if they had more, they'd give more. Because they, they, they were that crappy and that shitty. Yes. They were that crappy. And and maybe what I and maybe by hearing you say that, obviously I've had some sort of forgiveness and healing because I'm talking about it. Yeah. Um, otherwise I don't believe I would talk about it. But so so yes, a portion of that is correct. They I used to get up in the mornings and think, Oh my goodness, what if I run into somebody? What are they gonna say? What are they gonna think? Um, what am I gonna say? And now I, it doesn't, it doesn't flash in my head like that. So when I see somebody from my department, I'm friendly. I'm just the healing version of me and not the scared running version. In, in your interview that I listened to, you said yourself that it took a while to learn how to forgive, to be the person that was big enough to forgive others. That, that wasn't you at one point. Forgiving wasn't really on the, uh, on the table or saying that you were wrong. Admitting, admitting that you were wrong was something Correct. that you couldn't do. So tell me the, the difference in yourself. What's the difference between a person that can't say I'm wrong and the person that can say that they are wrong? What's the difference between those two people? The person that can say that they're wrong and understand and listen to the other side of the story is, in my opinion, brave and very brave because admitting you're wrong doesn't mean you're bad. And I had the two, every time that I would make a mistake or do something, it I felt like, oh, I'm... I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. There you go. You're the dumb kid again. Um, all of these things. So I, I, I strive for perfection and could never reach it. Um, but when I couldn't, when I didn't admit that I was wrong, I was, I dealt with those situations as arguments and tried to flip the tables. You're, you know, you're crazy. You're, it's your fault and all of that. So like I said at the beginning, this version of me in living in my own skin, no matter what anybody else thinks is so much, it's such a smoother skin than before. I have empathy the person that can say that they're wrong is the stronger person. Yes. Is the more mature person. Now let's yes. trans let's translate that to you. Sorry, I didn't mean for this to turn into a therapy session, but <laughs> let, let's translate this to your department. Yeah, there you go. They couldn't say they're wrong because because they don't know any better. Because they don't know any better. But I would hope that my hope is that one day still they somebody will come to me and say, what could we what can and what could we have done better? And that is what they should do if they ever mature to the point where they can. But relying on that, who has the power? 
well, I have the power now because it doesn't, it right. doesn't eat at me. <laughs> right. They and, can and, come and, to and, me. I'm not going to go to them. Right. And you do. But if you need any need that you have for forgiveness from them, gives them the power, does it not? Right. And, and I, and I said, I believe I said in my, um, my podcast with Melissa that I had to give up the hope of my idea of what my parents were going to be because it only, it only let me down. Yeah. So I have to give up the hope that my department I cannot put my what I believe they should do any longer in in I have to take it out of my mouth because the more I talk about that, it's just it's like scratching a scab, right? The operative word there is should, and I call it shooting all over each other. You know, you should. Are you shooting on me? Somebody shooted on me just last week. Right. On this episode, you should have done this and you should have done that. Why are you shooting on me? Stop it. Right. It doesn't feel very nice when you should on me. But we do that and we should on ourselves. Right. I should have done this. I should have done that. As opposed to, uh, well, I didn't. So what, what is there to learn? And can I learn and can I grow? And your department so I is... Re- is I not- have to relieve them, my department. I have to relieve my department of my expectations that yeah. they're going to be perfect. Yeah. And, and I believe that... I'm I'm there because I'm talking about it, um, and and I still have the hope that I have the knowledge of things that they can do better now uh, for other people. It doesn't. It's not traumatic for me to talk about it any longer. We're getting all kinds of comments coming up here in the comment stream. I just noticed. Uh, great big long ones, <laughs> some of them, but we are really connecting with some people right now. So I'll just mention them. Cliff St. Paul. Thank you, Cliff. Thank you, Alicia. Um, yeah, it's, uh, so we're, we're getting a lot of, uh, people going, yeah, resonating with that. <laughs> right on, right on. I, you know, in finding with forgiveness with myself and them, I'm able to talk honestly with you, my wife, my family, and, I'm I'm able to allow my brain to feel everything that it's feeling. And then when I get overwhelmed, I'm able to actually sit down, take a deep breath, maybe do a little meditation, and then go refocus on what was actually happening in the moment. Let's talk about some of the uh, tools that you've learned for coping and healing from Save a Warrior Project. Or Save a Warrior. So tell tell me about Save a Warrior. What's their scope? Who are they? What do they do? And what, what were your benefits from it? What was your experience like? Wow. Uh, Save a Warrior was amazing because they were able to, for me, up until I went to Save a Warrior, I didn't talk about my childhood. I felt like my all my problems were my almost 20 years of law enforcement. I couldn't connect the two. And I was afraid that if I talked about my childhood, somehow people would judge my parents. And I didn't want that at all because they did the best they could with what they had and how they, and they did the best they could with, and with what they knew. Right. And so I was always afraid, but save a warrior really put it into perspective for me. And I was able to make those connections that just because this happened doesn't make them bad. Just same way, just because I do something or make a mistake or have to say I'm sorry doesn't make me bad. Um, And so that was huge for Save a Warrior. It was an amazing 72 hours. Well, and this was a while ago that you went through Save a Warrior. Yes, this was last year. I went through WCPR first, and I probably, if I would have gone to Save a Warrior first and did them in reverse, I wouldn't have stayed at Save a Warrior because I wasn't ready to say that anything happened in my childhood. So when I went to to, um, WCPR, I was able to heal the trauma 
or start to heal the trauma. And what does that stand for? West Coast Post Traumatic uh, Retreat. It's okay. in Napa Valley. And uh, it's a first responder support network. They helped me. They focused on my work stuff, the, the department of betrayal, the post-traumatic stress, the, all the events of work. And so when I went to Save a Warrior, I had several years under my belt of doing that program and doing that program religiously, um, which opened my eyes to op- wanting to look into my childhood. So the two of them in the order that I went really brought it full circle for healing for me. Well, things seem to work out that way. You know, it's like we do have guardian angels and they go, no, no, go left, not right. Oh, it's time to go right, not left. And uh, that little bit of faith, things just seem to work out. You know, totally give you that little nudge one way or the other. For sure. So tell me about some of the tools from Save a Warrior. Meditation. Tell me about meditation. Was that difficult for you? A lot of people are frustrated when they try it. Uh, yeah, I hated it the whole time I was there. I bitched about it every single day. And we had to do it twice a day. And I was like, you people are crazy. There is no way that I can quiet this brain. You see how fast I'm talking? I can't do it. I need out of this room. <laughs> and and they sat with me. They're like, just, just be. And I'm like, just be? I don't understand what that even means. I am being. <laughs> so... Um, but I, I had made a commitment to myself again. Okay, I can go to this program and all of these things that I've never done before and, and feelings and, and all of that. I can give my whole 100% self or I can kind of try to navigate how I want this program to be and get not everything out of it. And so I sat in that chair and I said, Melanie, you're only doing yourself wrong if you don't 100% commit to this. They obviously know what they're doing. They've been doing this a long time. You've heard about it from people. Just be. So I don't know. Second day I'm sitting in the room. They are, you know, this whole thing. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. And I I didn't, I was maybe 20%, but then I was like, okay, what's everybody else doing? It's like squirrel. <laughs> um, by the last day, I was much better. But when I came home, I did it every morning. I said, you're going to, you are worth these minutes. Just go with the momentum. And now when I get triggered, if I, if something happens and I'm by myself, my wife isn't there, something happens, I can go into myself and breathe and quiet what's happening in my, in my head and then bring myself back. And that is something that I will forever thank Save a Warrior for. Uh, on being able to learn how to quiet my head and and bring myself into the real moment because when I get triggered I'm I go somewhere or I see something or I hear something um, and I'm able to ground myself a lot faster because of that. How's your anxiety been doing with uh, the tools that you have now say for restaurants? Well, I still can't sit with my back to the wall. Yeah, well, um, welcome to the club. But again, I talked about that in the last podcast. When you surround yourself with people, if you don't tell your friends what's happening, they don't know why you're freaking out because they're sitting in your chair and they don't even know it's your chair. You know, it's that, that ninja expectation that that chair is always going to be open, right? So when you walk in, you're like, what are you doing in my chair? Why are you sitting there? Um so if you don't tell them what is happening, they don't know. So I am open. This is, this is why I need to sit there. If you want me to be fully engaged in this meeting, meal, whatever, it would relieve my anxiety to be able to sit where you're sitting. Um, and, and for the most part now, we go to restaurants and the chair is open. <laughs> 
Do you find it uh, matters who you're sitting with? I know if I'm sitting with other soldiers, and if they're covering my six, then I, I don't need to have my um, my face to the door quite so badly. Absolutely. And and my wife will say that some, some, sometimes when, when there is a situation, an event that say like a work event or something where you can't just go in and say, Hey, I have post-traumatic stress and I need to sit there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, She will say to me, I have your six. I have your six. And I trust that in that moment that she does. And that's what's different is I would never ever trust my six except for myself and people don't understand how hard that uh, how strong that drive is to sit in a place that uh, gives you a view of the door access and egress um tactical advantage all, all these things um that that drive is something else i went to visit some veteran like we're all going to meet at a restaurant it was a really big restaurant it, i had no problem finding them because i just looked where i wanted to sit and that's where they were they they, <laughs> they picked the exact same table that i would have picked Exactly. Exactly. And you know, my wife understands because that we were in a situation when we were very early on 2004, we were very early on and um, we were in a restaurant and I actually had to jump up and take somebody down because there was a fight. And so she, she understood it from, from pretty much, you know, day one, why that was the reason why I needed to sit where I needed to sit. Yeah. So <laughs> it happens. So do your friends, do your soldier friends and first responder friends uh, a favor. Leave the seat that's facing the door open for them. <laughs> <laughs> we, my uh, wife and I, we went to uh, downtown Victoria. It's on Vancouver Island. And we did a Airbnb. We we're there for seven days. Apparently seven days in a downtown core is too much for this cowboy. And uh, by day four or five, we we're uh, going out uh, to a really cool Chinese food restaurant. Now, the drug-addicted homeless uh, crowd was like a lot. And um, and I watched a guy die um, from, from an OD. <laughs> it's like, well, uh, the, 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 the fire folk got him. He, he, he's all right. But I watched him die. You know, uh-huh. And we're supposed to be on vacation. And, yeah. um, I, I always watch this shit when, uh, when it's me and she's, she's still at the, at the Airbnb. It's like, well, of course you are. Of course I'm seeing this by myself. <laughs> of course you are. But, uh, we're, we're at a, uh, at a restaurant. My back is to the door and I couldn't do it. Cause there was a couple of dodgies just outside the door. And these dodgies right. caught my attention cause the body language, everything else. And, uh, so my wife was looking at the back of my head because I could not turn around and face her. I had to keep eyes on because I had, yep. uh, and then I, I couldn't tell her about it. Like I couldn't tell her why. I was just like, "Sorry, dodgies." Right, <laughs> I, right, I right, right. Got, yeah. But but she she forgot to be empathetic that day because it was it was hurtful to her that the uh, attention isn't on her. And right. uh, it's like, well, sorry, um, I'm pretty sure these guys are going to kick open the door and shoot the place up, and <laughs> which of course they didn't, but I was pretty sure they were going to. But right. the, the the power of that, though, like uh, the the need for the hyper vigilance to um, uh, when you see something that other people don't see, it's right. powerful. It's powerful. It's super powerful. And sometimes my wife will say, "I'm tired of looking at the wall." Because that's where we sit and I'm facing the door and she's facing the wall because we're in the way back of the restaurant or wherever. And, and I don't have, it's not like I can just say, oh, okay, well, let's switch seats. Um, but, I, and so I, I, I understand her, her part of it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, after 18 years, <laughs> I say, just look at my face, not the wall. <laughs> Why do you look both ways when you turn onto a one way? I know a thing or two because I've seen her thing or two. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, exactly. Just because it's you a one way story, doesn't mean nothing. My story, it's, it's filled with a lot of terrible choices. It's, it's um, filled with heartache and suicidal thoughts and 
um, a lot of loss and and wishes of what you know should have been or could have been. But I, I choose to live my life now by giving. It's it's like this major comeback story, right? And I'm the main character in my own story. I. I, I feel that I'm brave enough to go out into the world, tell my story, and not worry any longer. Of I don't live in the shame. I don't live in the I'm not worthy. I I live in that I can hopefully have somebody listen to this and know that they can stand up off of that bathroom floor and there is help. If you want it, it's there. And I know that it's the hardest thing you can ever ask for. But there are arms waiting for you. There are. And a big part of what this show is, is a doorway, a gateway to that help. Because different types of help are going to be more palatable to some people than others. So we got this episode 213, I think. And <laughs> nothing but modalities. People that, that are running the retreats or uh, different modalities of help, go listen to a few and see which one makes you go, yeah, I, I'd give that one a go or that one so- sounds okay. And for those that just do not have the strength yet to reach out for that help, they just keep listening to the show. I've had people right. listen to the show every, you know, for a year, every week for a year, um, and that was what they needed to do to build the strength to go, okay, I've heard enough stories of other people that have reached out for help. I can do this now because we lend other people our strength, which is what you are doing by sharing your story on, on different podcasts. You're lending your strength and courage to other people without ever depleting yourself. How has this been for you sharing your story on shows like mine? What's this done for you? Well, it's, it's given, it's healed. It's, it, it heals from the inside out instead of the, the outside in. I, I'm healing every time that I'm able to talk about this. Um, the more I release the power of, of my story, the better I feel. And when I first started talking about it, I would be drained for the day. Um, now I'm able to, when I, when I hang up, I will allow myself 15 minutes to meditate, believe it or not, <laughs> um, uh, and, and then get myself centered again and, and go about my day. Um, because, you know, I, I talked about this before, but it's like this, the LP, the record, right? You, the needle, you pick up the needle, you put it on the record, it spins in a circle, and then there's a scratch on it and just gets stuck, and it just sticks there until either somebody picks it up or they, you know, they pick it up and they move it just past that skip. And then the rest of the story plays. Well, I believe that I'm past the skip and telling the rest of my story. Whereas before I was just stuck in that, that couldn't pick that needle up and just move it that little millimeter that it needed to move. My favorite phrase, a friend of mine uh, said it when we're doing a veterans ride, motorcycle ride, he said, recover out loud, and how that phrase really hit him. So that's the top. I have a Operation Tango Romeo shirt on the top. It says, recover out loud, and that's my tagline on my emails, recover out loud. It's so I powerful. I need to get one of those. <laughs> by, by doing it, it takes, it takes the power away from the stigma. Reco- yes. That's the only way, and the stigma is the shame. The shame is the stigma. Stigma is shame. There, it's, it's all in the same ball of wax. And um, recovering out loud takes it takes your power back, right? And you know, I've learned that even in my worst days, I can make somebody else smile. It's about taking care of it's. It's about taking myself out of the equation, right? I I can go out and I can I can make somebody's day. That's right. And somebody else can make my day, right? 
But I also, when I decide to get up in the morning, get dressed, get showered, because I didn't do that for a while, um, I, that's the pride that I'm taking back in myself. I am worth it. There's a depression meme that I giggle every time because it's dark. <laughs> and uh, do you mean people can suffer from depression so bad that they don't even brush their teeth in the morning? Karen, people kill themselves because of depression in the morning. You know, yeah, you know, dark yeah. and funny, but um, yes, that's there's so little empathy. It's like, oh, you're just being lazy. Why can't you even get out of bed? Well, it, that that's a sign. Try not to be a douchebag about it. You know, if somebody right, can't get right. out can't get out of bed, I had a um, uncle that lived with us for years. I, I think a total of six years. And I went, I he stayed in in bed for two weeks once, you know, two weeks. And, uh, like it was something else, but we didn't really understand what it was or, or how to help. So we're just like, okay, well, when you're done, you're done, you know, let, let me know when you wake up in a couple of weeks, but we would make fun of them instead of, uh, have empathy for them and, and try to help them. And, and I, I didn't stay in bed. I actually got up every day, but I moved like a sloth. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the weight, yeah, it was, it was heavy. I didn't leave the house and I'm a, I'm a friendly person. I, I think, um, and I just couldn't people, sorry, I can't be peopling today. <laughs> yeah. 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 But you know, a, a, I have a friend, she's a friend of mine now. She, she's a clinician. Um, she really helped change, change my life. And she's, she said to me, she said, fear, because I was, I was trapped in fear. And she said that fear equals face everything and run or face everything and rise. And so because I lived in the run part of it for so long, I choose to live my life every day in the rise part. Yeah. And I tell myself that when I get scared, I'm like, just rise, just rise, Melanie. So, um, so I, I use that analogy. The same with hope, it, you know, hold on, hold on pain ends. So um, that's kind of how I move through the day. Mm-hmm. Every storm passes is the uh, phrase I use for that. And it's kept me alive. Right. Like, yes. Like, like when you're in the shit storm and it's in your mouth, it's like, ah, yeah. you know, it's like, okay, I'll be able to rinse my mouth out and I'll be able to, uh, this will pass. This is really yes. horrific, but this, every storm will pass and it does. And that's where faith comes in. Yes. Having, having a faith that that is in fact the truth, because it doesn't feel like it when you're in the shit storm. Right. And I think the biggest part of my healing was when I was able to accept my new reality. And even though it looked completely drastically different than what I envisioned my life being, um, you know, I was going to ride out into the sunset with this, you know, on the horse with my cowboy hat and my badge. Yeah, that was going to be my thing. And now I was stuck at home, not showering and wondering where what happened to my life. Um, but having post-traumatic stress, that in, being able to have that injury and heal that injury probably was the best thing that's ever happened to me. Tell me more because about that. it brought... It was like Melanie was reborn again. And Melanie was reborn without the shame, without being scared, without the talk track in my head of you're not good enough, you are the dumb kid, you all of these things, and and being able to go on this journey of this post-traumatic stress injury just has brought me the true me full circle. Tell me about this documentary that's going on and will be coming out soon. Well, I don't have much to talk about it, but when I do, I'm definitely going to uh, send you the link, but it's about self-compassion. 
Uh, I believe they they went all over the country looking for people uh, that were healing from trauma, uh, and they they got a hold of me, um, and I was just able to watch the pre-screening of it, and, and it's I have to say it's pretty darn good. Well, I'm looking forward so, to it, and please do remember. <laughs> I will remember you know, for sure. Be sharing that, and I will share it as well once it gets published. Is it uh, going to be just on YouTube, or is it going to be on Netflix? Do you know? It's, uh, you know, I honestly don't know. I think it's definitely going to be on YouTube, but they, it's from a, um, a production company, so I don't know where they, how they release it. Um, but, again, at the minute I have it, I will, um, you, after I share it with my family, but I'll put it on my social media as well. Um, and I can get you, you know, all of that, but, uh, I will share it with you. I think I only got 30 spots left for friend requests and I sent you one. So make sure you click on it. I already took care of that. All right. We're friends. Yeah. How good is this? (laughs) It's awesome. It's awesome. All right, sister. Well, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you for finding the courage to recover out loud and sharing your courage with others and sharing your story. Thank you. And please share my stuff on, on you on, cause if anybody's struggling, they want to talk to me, I'm, I'm here for you. So it's what I do. Stay on the line. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Hello, my friends. Thank you for sharing your time with me today. I hope you found value in today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, healing, or informative, please let me know by leaving a rating on either Spotify or Apple. And please share, share like the sugar bear on all of your social media channels because sharing is caring.